Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to this episode of the Science, Technology, and Society channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Trapagan, an anthropologist and professor in the Department of Religious Studies and the Program in Human Dimensions of Organizations at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, my guest is Dr. Paul Davies to talk about his recent book, The Demon in the Machine, How Hidden Webs of Information Are Solving the Mystery of Life, which was recently published by the University of Chicago Press. Professor Davies, thank you for joining me on the SDS channel. This is a fascinating exploration around the edges of how we see the world and the really very difficult question of how we define life. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I'll begin with a little background about Dr. Davies. He is a theoretical physicist, cosmologist, astrobiologist, and best-selling science author. He's published about 30 books and hundreds of research papers and review articles across a range of scientific fields. His research interests have focused mainly on quantum gravity, uh, early universe cosmology, the theory of quantum black holes, and the nature of time. But he also has delved into philosophical implications of physics in several of his works. Among his many awards are the 1995 Templeton Prize, the Faraday Prize from the Royal Society, the Kelvin Medal, the prize uh, from the Institute of Physics. It's a very long list, and I, we could probably spend quite a while going over it. It's, it's very impressive. Um, I, I would like to say that I first became aware of Dr. Davies' work way back in the 1980s when I was a student of a physicist and philosopher named Henry Margineau at Yale. Uh, while I was uh, visiting my family home in Massachusetts, I ran across a copy of his book, God and the New Physics, at a bookstore called Wordsworth that used to be in Harvard Square. And it's one of the many great bookstores that have unfortunately disappeared over the past few decades. And I was really fascinated by uh, Professor Davies' work when I read that book. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I have to say, it is really great to be able to talk with you in person some 35 years later, which I don't think I would have ever expected when I was uh, reading that book uh, back as a graduate student. So um, I'd like to begin by uh, asking a fairly uh, straightforward question. And I'm, I'm curious about how you became interested in the question, what is life that shapes the book? Uh, on the surface, it doesn't seem like a question one would expect of a physicist. But you know, as you point out, others like Schrodinger um, have also been intrigued by this question. So could you, you know, talk to our audience a little bit about how, how you got interested in this? Well, we have to go back an entire, uh, uh, to an entire different millennium. I was a student in London uh, in the uh, 1960s. We called it the swinging 60s. It was the age of the Beatles, you may remember. And um, I came across Schrodinger's book. You mentioned uh, the, the book in your introduction. So Schrodinger was a giant of theoretical physics. He was the co-founder of the subject of quantum mechanics, the most successful scientific theory ever. And this was developed in the late 1920s at a stroke. It explained the nature of matter uh, pretty much all the way from subatomic particles right up to the uh, cores of, of stars. But it didn't explain living matter. And in the 1940s, when many scientists from Europe had escaped the Nazis and gone to work on the 
Allied war effort, Schrodinger went to Ireland, which was neutral in World War II, and was uh, away from the war effort. He was able to indulge his interests. And he uh, developed this theme of what is life. He gave a series of lectures uh, in Dublin at uh, Trinity College in 1943 that became a little book called What is Life? And that book was very influential on a whole generation of physicists who then turned into molecular biologists. Uh, And so as a physicist, I naturally was uh, drawn to that book and I read it with fascination because I thought, well, yes, what is life? To a a physicist, life looks like magic. Uh, It seems to do things which are so preposterous, so extraordinary. uh, We see it nowhere else in the physical universe. It's only living matter that can do things uh, like uh, uh, respond to their environments in in clever ways and seem to have strategies and and goals and purposes and so forth. It is deeply, deeply mysterious to a physicist. Curiously, it's not so mysterious to biologists because that's the subject they study. So they sort of take it for granted. That's what life does. But uh, at the level of physics, it does seem deeply, deeply baffling. And so uh, I was bitten by that bug at a very early age uh, uh, as a student and as a young postdoc. And then it was a sort of check at history. Um, I uh, have worked, as you said in your introduction, mainly uh, on problems in the foundations of physics and cosmology. Uh, But in 1983, uh, Martin Rees, now Lord Rees, he was uh, subsequently Master of Trinity College, President of the Royal Society, and is now still the Astronomer Royal, so a very, very distinguished uh, scientist, astronomer by training. He held a conference in Cambridge, uh, the UK, called From Matter to Life. And some of the great luminaries in this this space, this linkage between physics and biology, were there. Uh, And uh, that really rekindled my interest. And from that point on, I uh, became more seriously interested in making a contribution to the subject. And this was before what we now call astrobiology, was in vogue. That uh, had to wait another decade or so. Uh, But I, in the 1990s, became interested now in the search for life beyond Earth and the possibility that life might uh, be transported between uh, at least Earth and Mars in uh, impact ejector, material flung out of uh, off these planets by asteroid and comet impacts. Uh, And that was my entree into what we now call astrobiology. And I helped create the Australian Centre for Astrobiology. I've moved to Australia by then. And, um, you know, one thing led to another. And uh, so uh, I began working more seriously uh, in in recent years on trying to understand how life came to exist from non-life, what what it was that uh, made that transition. So my my interests really, to summarise, goes back a long way, back to my time as a student in London. uh, But it's been in more recent years, I've been able to more seriously engage with the subject. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting thing how sometimes uh, topics that are very interesting to one early in, in one's career, you know, kind of keep floating around and eventually crop up and become a very important part of what one does. And uh, it seems like this has been something that has kind of been with you throughout your career at some level. Um, I, I You opened the book with a, a chapter addressing um, this 
broad question about you know what life is, and and partway through you define it. You say life equals matter plus information. Uh, I found this to actually be a really intriguing way of thinking about what separates life from non-life, um, and yet somehow I found myself feeling like it was too simple. But I'm really not sure why I think it's too simple. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the definition. And in the process of doing this, of course, this raises another really important question, which you, uh, you know, note and get at in the book: what's information? And, and so I'd like if you could talk about these things a little bit. That would be very interesting. Let me first just uh, reiterate this background that uh, biologists mm-hmm. uh, don't uh, think that there's anything sort of specially miraculous going on in in life, and I'm not suggesting there is. But if you uh, go to a biology department at a university and ask this question that Schrodinger asked, what is life? Uh, you'll be uh, given a narrative in terms of things like um, transcription and translation and uh, uh, instructions and signals. Uh, and uh, these days we even have this fantastic technology called CRISPR, which is a gene editing technology. Uh, so all of the discussion in biology is about um, about in information, information processing, storage, and transmission, and errors in that information. Uh, that's the basis of, of uh, Darwinian evolution. And so it's, it's a narrative uh, formulated in what we might think of as software terms. Uh, but if you go to physics department or chemistry department, so what is life, you'll be given a very different story in terms of molecular shapes and sizes and binding affinities and entropy and energy and material flow and so on. Uh, In other words, it's a hardware description. So uh, we have hardware and we have software, but they're talking about the same thing. Now, these aren't in contradiction. Uh, If you think about a computer, for example, uh, then uh, if I said earlier to a physicist, life looks like magic. Well, uh, to a physicist, uh, actually, a computer looks like magic. You know, this <laughs> astonishing thing, you know, Windows or Photoshop or PowerPoint, it looks like magic. Now, if you go along to a computer science department and say, um, explain to me what's going on with PowerPoint. Well, uh, if someone took the back off the computer and said, well, we don't know exactly, but in here there's some silicon and there's some copper and there's a lot of plastic around, and it's sort of connected up in a compl- complicated way. Um, we don't know the full details, but we're we're on on the case, and with a big enough budget, we will get to the bottom of this, and we'll be able to explain PowerPoint. Well, you know that's a ridiculous explanation. You have to go to a software engineer who says, well, this is the code that we started with, and we built on that, and it's a hierarchical thing, and this is the way we, we link all these modules together, and... In other words, you'd be given a, a, a software explanation. And the same is true with life. It seems to me ridiculous that we can say, well, what is life? We'll explain its magical properties by uh, drilling down and looking at individual base pairs in DNA or something like that. That's part of the story. That's the hardware part. But the real key that makes life distinct from other complex physical systems is the way it stores and processes uh, inf- information. Now, you're asking very recently, what is this thing called information? Let me first say that um, I don't think any of our listeners will be in doubt about the fact that life is in the business of information. We uh, know about genes. Genes are like the uh, code book of life. We 
these terms are used all the time. Uh, this information is indeed in a mathematical code. It's a universal code, incidentally, for all life on Earth. The, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, it's, a, <coughs> it's a universal code uh, for all life on Earth. Um, the uh, media will often talk about your genetic code or my genetic code being slightly different. The, the term is misused. The thing called the, gen the genetic code, the universal genetic code, is uh, the way in which the information stored in DNA and the four base pairs, the four-letter alphabet of DNA, gets translated into the 20-letter alphabet uh, of amino acids, which are used to build proteins. Uh, and so um, it's encrypted information, which has to be decrypted before it can be read out and implemented. And that code, that encryption, is the same for all life on Earth. That's a very important point. Uh, and um, so I think we're familiar with that idea. That information is used to build an organism, and it's propagated from one generation to the next. So the information is copied, sometimes with errors, and passed on. But that's actually only the tip of an iceberg. Uh, genes don't act in isolation. Uh, they usually form parts of networks, which are very complicated, can be very complicated, and information swirls around those networks. In particular, genes can turn each other on and off. You can think of this as a bit like ones and zeros, little switches, uh, and they're wired together chemically to form complex circuits. And there's an entire branch of biology these days of basically... Um, trying to deduce the wiring diagrams of various components uh, in living organisms and sometimes to rewire them. And the great dream, or my dream, of being able to tackle a problem, say, like cancer, is finding a way, not just trying to sort of destroy the cells, but finding a way to rewire them uh, right. so that they're less troublesome. Uh, so all of uh, this sort of information speak uh, is very familiar to biologists. It goes on because cells signal each other. What is a signal? But a transfer of information. They do this chemically, electrically, and by physical touch, mechanical forces. And all of these things are very dramatic. And this can lead to collective behavior of many cells together. Things like slime molds, for example, uh, display collective organization. And then it goes on up when we think about uh, uh, birds or insects, social insects. Uh, there's a whole sort of web of interactions, or we think of something as astonishing as the developing embryo, where all of the parts have to be in the right place at the right time, develop uh, and differentiate in exactly the right way. This is under control of um, a vast inf information network that couples to a chemical network that, uh, and an electrical network, as we now know, which uh, is part of the signaling. Uh, and it goes on up and up and up uh, to a planetary scale. Uh, we, um, we, when we think of life, we can't think of it in, in isolation. We have to think of it as part of an ecosystem, which ultimately is a planetary system. So I like to say that uh, the, uh, the global biosphere is the original World Wide Web. Uh, mm -hmm. It is a web of, of information. And I suppose the most obvious example of information in biology is between our ears. It's that great information processor we call the brain, which has the power of a megawatt supercomputer, uh, but uh, operates with less than uh, that of a, of a light bulb, less energy than that of a light bulb. But now, finally, to get to your question, what is information? Because I've used it in this sort of glib, 
every day since. And physicists like to be very precise. And fortunately, uh, the theory of information was developed many years ago in the 1940s by um, a clever engineer called Claude Shannon. And he took a rather austere definition of information as simply reduction in uncertainty. Well, what does that mean? You toss a coin, uh, you don't look. Uh, did it come down heads? Did it come down tails? You're uncertain as to which, it's 50 50. Um, but if you look and uh, sure enough, it's heads, that uncertainty is reduced to zero. Or the same with a everyday thing like you want to catch a, uh, a train, for example, uh, and you get a timetable and you show up before the train is due, and that reduces the uncertainty of, uh, of when the train is going to come and how long you might have to wait. So we're very familiar with that idea. Uh, and he built upon that, built an entire branch of, of mathematics, which has permeated uh, pretty much all of engineering and biology and physics. Uh, and it's, it's very much part of the everyday world of scientists. Um, but it was very, very austere. And it's certainly true that the information stored, say, in DNA, can be quantified in terms of Shannon's bits, as he called them, binary digits, one bit of information like heads or tails. Uh, you can quantify that information in DNA, um, but uh, it falls far short of explaining life for the simple reason that if you uh, take what people used to call junk DNA, these days we don't think there is a great deal of actual junk, but um, imagine a sequence of base pairs in DNA. Uh, if it codes for a gene, uh, which, uh, is, which actually has some functionality, um, uh, it doesn't look superficially any different from a random sequence. Just shuffle those bits uh, would be biological gobbledygook um, and it wouldn't do anything. So it doesn't have functionality. But in terms of the number of bits of information uh, as defined by Shannon, it's the same. So just a head count of bits won't do it. Uh, if we're coming to uh, trying to come up with an explanation of the amazing things that biology does, we have to understand how um, uh, we need a definition which applies not just to the, uh, the number of bits being stored locally, but to the entire system. We need a systemic approach where we, we ask, well, um, do these bits mean anything? Do they have context in the light of the cell and its whole project? And that's a very tough scientific problem. It's very, very hard uh, for scientists of any discipline, but particularly physicists, um, to come to terms with the idea that something of fundamental importance uh, isn't localizable. It's something that is systemic. It depends on the system as a whole. And the chain of causation, which we're used to thinking of as bottom up, something happens, in this case, say, a defect in a gene leads to consequences for the organism. But it's a two-way flow in biology. Things that happen on the scale of a cell or even the whole organism or even the whole ecosphere uh, can react back down on what's going on at the microscopic level. So it's a two-way information exchange. And uh, these systems, like a cell, for example, are open systems. They're open to information coming in from their environment. That's a very hard thing to get to grips with. Um, but it's not impossible. And that, in my view, is where the real secret of life lies, not just in 
head counts of bits of information, but in linking what is going on at the bottom level with what is going on at all the levels above uh, in, in a way that we can maybe discuss a little bit later on. That's actually uh, really interesting to me as an anthropologist, uh, because the field of anthropology has gone through a, a kind of a, a similar process of, you know, initially thinking in terms of culture in very deterministic ways, and and then realizing this, I think, started to really emerge in the in the eighties, a, a sense that whatever culture is, and we have a very hard time defining it, um, it involves this back and forth. It's a it's kind of multi directional thing, and it's not just that people are shaped by their culture. But every time they speak, every time they say something, think something, they're also redirecting whatever that thing is that we're talking about as culture. And, and, and the, the process, it, it, culture, if it's anything, is really a process. And that flow is just constantly being reshaped and redesigned as people interact with each other. And it sounds an awful lot like what you just described, which is, is something I really find quite interesting. And I, th- I would absolutely agree that uh, the um, cultures, uh, human cultures, or I suppose we could even talk about uh, you know social, social insects. Uh, they, mm-hmm. they they have a sort of culture. It is a two way flow of information. It's bottom up and top down, and you can't understand what's going on unless you see that feedback. Um, and modelling that feedback, uh, it's not impossible. And I know people who are making heroic attempts to do it. Um, but it's it takes most scientists outside of their comfort zone. Well, it's one problem, you know. Certainly, when dealing with with you know humans, it's just really, really messy. It's complex. It's it's so as soon as you kind of get your hands around one little component of it, it seems to be changing and going in another direction, and um, it it really makes it very, very difficult to um, work with from a scientific perspective. Um, and, you know, there are people, again, also in, in anthropology trying to work through this. Uh, but some people have also actually even got to the point where they started moving away from using the concept of culture because they felt it, it was just not capturing what the complexity of what's going on. I, actually, I want to turn a little bit to this um, question um, of what, for me, of course, what came up was, you know, I, I, well, let, let me backtrack for a moment here. Um I, I wouldn't be surprised if if maybe I was not uh, a reader that that when you were writing this you were thinking oh he's going to get a huge amount out of this in terms of thinking about cultural anthropology but in fact I did um, it really got me thinking about the nature of what culture is and and thinking about how you know humans interact as cultural beings and you were talking about um, this uh, you developed a very interesting claim that information is all information is physical. And, and what you, you know, mean, if I understand this correctly, is that all information is tied to physical objects. Um, there isn't some sort of ether in which information somehow floats freely. And, and this was actually a very powerful observation for me, because this is a struggle that anthropologists have had for a long time. You know, my, they ask the question, where is culture? And, well, where it is, is, you know, sometimes some anthropologists have said, well, it's out there in the interaction between people or something like that. But that's really not that helpful. And I think you really do a nice job of talking about information as, as not existing independently of physical objects. Um, and of course, when talking about culture, the most important of those physical objects is brains. And so um, 
I'm, I'm wondering, no, how would you respond? And, and so uh, you, you and I very much agree on this, but I, I, I would like to ask, since I will certainly hear this sometimes in anthropology, you know, how would you respond to the claim that this is a reductionist argument that really ignores the possibility of non-material realities? It would be reductionist if we uh, retreated to the position that I've just criticized, which is a, a Shannon approach to information. It's just uh, one bit of information uh, down, uh, well, on each coin or, or in each um, uh, strand of each um, base pair of DNA or something. But I'm trying to make the case that uh, we have to link uh, the different levels. We have bottom-up and top-down causation. Uh, and a lot of people, when they, uh, I think most scientists would imagine that when we get to complex, higher levels of organization, for example, like the cell, uh, that um, there is a, a reductionist would say, well, really, a cell is nothing but a collection of molecules. And we use this term cell, or we say it's living. Uh, just as an informal and convenient way of talking about a particular physical system, but ultimately it's all about what's going on at the bottom. So a true reductionist would think, uh, take this nothing battery approach, that there's ultimately nothing but um, the molecules and the physics of uh, molecules. Uh, and I think that's profoundly wrong. Uh, I, uh, because living systems are open systems, they're not deterministic, even if you knew everything about the molecules, even if we ignore quantum mechanics and you just thought of this as a sort of complicated bag of particles moving in accordance with the laws of physics, even if you had that complete knowledge, uh, you would still not be able to predict what they do because they're open systems. And so there is room, plenty of room, for additional fundamental uh, laws or principles to emerge at these higher levels of organization, consistent, entirely consistent with the physics at the lower level. So uh, I've stuck my neck out in this book and I've said I think that there are new fundamental laws, that there is new physics lurking in living matter. Uh, this uh, physics is uh, consistent with but not reducible to what is down there at the bottom level. Uh, and uh, that we don't yet know what they are, but I make some uh, suggestions as to the type of laws uh, that it might be and where, where we might uh, find this uh, operating. So I think this is not a reductionist approach, but I would like to just uh, e explain to the people listening to us about this uh, idea that, you know, is information physical? Is it floating uh, free? Yes. Um, because it sort of has a dual um, uh, status here. Uh, we, we know, for example, with a computer uh, that I can uh, download a, a file and I can put it on a memory stick and then I can put it in another computer and send it down an optical fiber and then maybe over a microwave link or Bluetooth or something, can keep doing this. And the information uh, is instantiated in different uh, media when we do this. Uh, it's always uh, uh, instantiated in physical degrees of freedom somewhere. But uh, the reason that we talk about information as a thing is because uh, its content is independent of the substrate in which it's instantiated doesn't matter uh, if I've got a, a Word document. It doesn't matter whether it's on my memory stick or my computer or being sent to you uh, with photons or whatever it is. The information content stays the same. So it has a sort of um, 
quasi-independent existence. And it's, uh, so it's a sort of middle ground, um, but it, it's not unprecedented. And a close analogy is with energy. We talk about energy as if it's a thing, um, but it, it doesn't, again, you know, float uh, free. Uh, energy is always in something. Uh, it might be mechanical energy or electrical energy or chemical energy or something, and it can be converted from one form to the other. And if you do that without loss, then the energy is conserved. Uh, and so energy has a sort of independent existence, but it's it's an existence that is always tied in some way to some material degrees of freedom. Um, and I see information as very much the same. So we can talk about it. Earlier I gave the example of the, the magic of uh, uh, PowerPoint on a computer uh, and the way in which we're not going to get an explanation in terms of the circuitry in the computer. Uh, we, we go and talk to a software engineer about how that works. Uh, and in the same way, when we're talking about information, particularly in biology, uh, we're, we're going to be using that type of sort of software language. But we all know uh, in a computer or in living organisms, the software has to run on some hardware. And in many cases, the nature of that hardware is not terribly important. Uh, we can uh, take a, a Word document from my PC and run it on my wife's Mac. Uh, everything is fine. It's different hardware, uh, but the software is more or less the same. A few glitches sometimes. Uh, so that's the way I see information. Um, and so here is something which um, has this... Uh, uh, Permanence to it, unless you, you literally throw that information away or erase it, uh, it's got some sort of um, quasi-independent existence. It swirls around in biology, swirls around gene networks and uh, flows between uh, organisms and so on. Um, it, we There is room to describe uh, that information, not just uh, uh, sla slavishly following the laws of physics, um, just as we can write uh, new bits of software to make my computer to do amazing things. Same physics going on in the computer, but now we have a, a new functionality uh, in PowerPoint or Word or whatever it is. Uh, and so we can think about it in the same way. And so just as uh, software engineers, uh, they have their uh, principles for organizing the software. They write in certain uh, languages. Uh, these languages have rules. Nobody would say that uh, the, um, the, the the rules of uh, the, I, I have to say that the only one I've ever programmed in is Fortran, which is very ancient. But nobody would say that the rules of Fortran uh, somehow contradict uh, the laws of physics. Uh, they don't. We can have them in addition to the laws of physics, and uh, so this is very much the way I see the emergence of life. I see it as something which uh, can have its own rules, which are just as fundamental as the software rules like Fortran, and they're not contradicting the underlying physics. Uh, and that way of thinking uh, has appealed to me all my life, I might say. Uh, it's gained much more traction, I think, in recent decades, uh, when people have been taking more seriously uh, the physics of complex, open uh, systems, which are far from thermodynamic equilibrium. So this is a, a burgeoning field. And that way of, of speaking uh, has become not, not only in physics, I might say, but in engineering. Uh, people now talk about agent-based modeling. Uh, they talk about swarm robotics and so on. 
They're designing little components to self-organize, exchange information and behave uh, in, with goal-oriented behavior. This is all part of uh, modern engineering. Uh, and that sort of old way of thinking, well, ultimately, it's just electrons and atoms and things, um, is slowly fading away as people uh, work more and more on the realities of these uh, complex, open, dy dynamical systems that display uh, goal-oriented behavior, agent-like uh, behavior. So um, let me ask a, a question about this hardware software idea. And I, I think, you know, obviously people have talked about this as, as sort of a metaphor, um, but you're, I don't think you're using it as a metaphor. I think you're the way, as I understand it, um, as I think you're saying that more or less, this is the same sort of thing that what we see with the software and the hardware and the computer is what's going on from a biological perspective. Um, and uh, I guess my first question is, is that a, a reasonable assessment of, of the position you're taking? And then kind of going a step beyond that, um, what are the implications of that, if that's correct, for um, what we call artificial intelligence? And, and um, you know, would you, are, are we going to have machines that, that um, are conscious? And, and is consciousness, how does consciousness fit into this whole sort of overall way of thinking about life? Uh, well, let, let me deal with the second uh, question first, because I'm uh, deeply fascinated. And it's interesting that Schrodinger, after completing his What is Life project, uh, wrote another book some years later called uh, uh, Mind and Matter, I think it was, uh, and turned to the question of consciousness. Because, of course, uh, if, if life is amazing, then consciousness is doubly amazing. Uh, we don't, at the moment, know of non-living systems that are conscious, though, as you mentioned, uh, with artificial intelligence, people uh, seem to have that dream. Uh, but uh, there is no doubt whatever that when it comes to uh, goal-oriented or purpose-like behavior, uh, we see it most forcefully in organisms that we would regard as conscious, like human beings, for example. Um, the mystery for me of consciousness is it, there's no uh, dividing line. If you look at, uh, uh, say, a bacterium, it will behave um, in a goal-oriented way. It garners information from its environment. Uh, it responds accordingly. It can, for example, move towards a, a food source. Um, so it's a sort of rudimentary type of behavior. I don't think many people would regard bacteria is conscious. So I once spoke to a bacteriologist who gave up and I said, well, um, what did you learn? And he said, well, I was in the subject long enough to learn that, uh, that bacteria have a sense of humor. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, when it, when it gets to uh, the humans, of course, we don't doubt our consciousness. And I think most of us believe that uh, pets um, uh, have consciousness. Uh, but if you go down uh, the, uh, the chain of life, uh, you know, from a cat or a dog or a bird or something down uh, to a bacterium, there's no obvious point to which there's an abrupt change in the behavioral characteristics. And so uh, it's, it's a very deep mystery uh, as to how this thing called consciousness emerges. Can it be quantified and what's going on in the brain? Now, frankly, I, uh, what I often tell people is that there are three great origin mysteries in science. There's the origin of the universe, the origin of the origin of consciousness. 
And having worked for most of my career with the origin of the universe, I feel that we've got that one under control. We understand uh, what is going on there. Uh, the origin of life is uh, still deeply problematic, but we're sort of on the case and we can imagine that this is a problem that might be solved in the coming decades. When it comes to the origin of consciousness, we're really struggling to even formulate what the question is. Uh, we don't actually have the conceptual framework to be able to say, well, what is going on here? I've devoted a chapter of the book. It's uh, called The Ghost in the Machine. That's a well-worn phrase. Uh, and uh, uh, and I've had a go at setting out what I think the problem is uh, and, uh, and a way that we might um, move the subject forward, obviously using this in information, uh, multi-layered information and uh, co concepts of top-down causation and so on as part of that. But uh, frankly, I think it's still uh, very deeply mysterious. And, um, and I think it might, uh, when I get depressed about these things, I sometimes think it might forever lie beyond the scope of the scientific mm -hmm. method. Uh, because what we're dealing with is something uh, that the whole notion of subjectivity, my consciousness, is uh, by definition not something I can put out there and other people can investigate uh, in independently. So it's a, it's a very, very tricky one, but a fascinating one to think about. I'm afraid in my rambling answer, I forgot the first part of your question that you just asked. I think I forgot it too, so that's okay. <laughs> I actually had another one that cropped up, so I, I'm, I'm going to... Um, I'm, I'm, this may be a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, so, you know, if we go back to your, your definition of life, life equals matter plus information. So is the Microsoft surface that I'm using right now, is it alive? Uh, to life, I think is if we have many, many computers networked together with lots of feedback, uh, and, uh, information processing at the higher level, that is the collective organization as well as down at the lower level of the component within the computer. That's getting uh, getting closer. Um, I, I think we're still a long way uh, from, from that. Uh, most people, when they're thinking about um, uh, hooking computers together, really probably more interested in artificial intelligence. When I say hooking computers together, uh, often that doesn't mean uh, literally plugging one computer into another can mean parallel processing, for example, in a supercomputer. Um, and, uh, and, and people, there are some, some optimists who imagine that we're getting close to the point where a system like that, might, we might want to ascribe consciousness or agency to it. These are all very difficult words and concepts. Um, I, I can simply say the following thing, that uh, consciousness is a mystery. Uh, and there are two possible answers. One is that it's a natural process, which we haven't yet uh, figured out. And the other is that it's a supernatural process or that there is something uh, added on or something in addition. Um, and uh, uh, a bit like the concept of vitalism in life, that it was a sort of add-on. Um, I've never been a fan of add-on, and I think that consciousness is a, is a physical process. I don't think it's one of these things that can be reduced to what's going on at the level of individual neurons. It is a collective organization. I don't think we've cracked it yet, but I think it is a physical process. And if something is a physical process, then in principle, you can manufacture a duplicate of that physical process. 
may not be a practical proposition. It may be that uh, life has done things which are just so um, extraordinary, so technically difficult over such immense periods of time uh, that we just wouldn't have the budget uh, to be able to uh, to recreate. But of course, the goal of artificial intelligence for those people who believe that you could you know, manufacture a device that would pass the famous Turing test or something like that, uh, they do take the point of view that at the end of the day, consciousness is a physical process that if we get to the bottom of it, we could we could duplicate it. And that, of course, leads us into these vast areas of social responsibility and ethics and, you know, would a robot or a computer have a soul and uh, what responsibilities we would have there. And this is, this is well-worn territory in science fiction as well as in philosophy, all deeply fascinating. I've steered clear of it all in my book because I don't feel I have any authority uh, to, to be able to address those issues. But it could be upon us sooner rather than later. And we can imagine that some of our younger listeners now might live in a world where there are systems, and I don't like using words like robots and computer and cyborg and so on, because I think they might be like none of these, but systems that not only uh, carry out um, simple things like arithmetic, very much better than we do, but increasingly make decisions about ethical problems, societal problems, economic problems. Uh, they're doing the intellectual heavy lifting. And these people uh, listening now may live in that world in a few decades' time. Uh, and then they will have to come up with a way of regulating or respecting or understanding uh, these um, non-biological, non post-biological entities. Uh, and, and it could be, I, I often wonder whether we get hung up on the concepts that uh, go back thousands of years, rather traditional ones. We've been talking about consciousness. This is something we feel we understand. It could be that the language will change and that the concepts will transcend the things we're talking about now. Uh, just like um, uh, there would be no good going back to uh, the time of Plato and saying, uh, you know, we've got this uh, problem of this pro programming language being incompatible with that and um, uh, and that if you want, uh, you know, PowerPoint to have this functionality and so on, they wouldn't understand any of that because that conceptual framework didn't exist. So it could be that we will only come to grips with these really tough problems, uh, the way we couch them, by uh, coming up with some whole new framework of concepts that would transcend those problems. The problems would fade away because they're being, we're casting them in the wrong language. And that's something that's always deeply fascinated me, that uh, when you've got a, an age-old problem that is really, really tough, uh, that the answer might simply lie in transcending it and reformulating the question or uh, coming at the at the subject from a different conceptual framework, uh, and then then we can move on. And I I see this whole sort of AI consciousness ethics surrounding that as falling into that category. I think people will just be talking about all this in a very different way in a hundred years. Yeah, I I. I... I agree. I think that that makes an enormous amount of sense. We we don't, in a sense, have the tools really right now to grapple with where that's going to go. And but I I do think one of the things that's really interesting in your book is you you kind of begin moving in that direction. Um, you have at one point a really fascinating discussion about 
swarm intelligence. And I, I think this is kind of similar to uh, what I think of as distributed intelligence. And we see this with things like birds and schools of fish. And um, one of the things I really um, enjoyed about your approach is that it it challenges our sense of the notion of intelligence as being limited to humans, or maybe humans are just a few other animals on our planet. And uh, from my perspective, just as our planet is teeming with life, I, I see it as teeming with intelligence of many different kinds. And um, I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, first of all, the, the idea of, of seeing this clear linkage between information and matter is, is supporting that. And then um, also, I'm, I'm curious about what this linkage of information and matter might mean in terms of implications for how uh, we think about our, our planet and think about issues that are coming towards us, such as climate change, you know, or that coming towards us that we're in the middle of, such as climate change and, and you know, pollution and environmental degradation. You've asked a really important question uh, because um, the uh, I mentioned earlier that the biosphere was like the original World Wide Web. Uh, and... Uh, this has been forced upon us during this uh, curious time of the COVID pandemic uh, because viruses have had a rather bad press. Um, but uh, where would we be without them? A, a substantial fraction of the human uh, genome is actually of viral origin. These are viruses that infected our ancient ancestors and inveigled themselves into DNA because they actually had some beneficial effect. Uh, so the vast majority of viruses uh, are not harmful, uh, and some of them are directly good. I think we all know that humans have a so-called microbiome, that is, that there are more cells in your body that are not you uh, than the ones that are you. And these not you cells are bacteria and a other type of microbe called uh, archaea, uh, and they are uh, absolutely critical for the functioning, not just in your gut, but in all of all of your organs. All body cavities have this microbiome. But it turns out there's also a microvirome. There are viruses uh, in, inside us as well. Uh, and um, sometimes uh, they're doing a lot of good. And there are viruses as a planetary microbiome. The microbes vastly outnumber the uh, species of organisms that we see in zoos and so on. Um, and there's a microvirome or a planetary virome uh, just as well. And uh, if we think of viruses as really like mobile uh, genetic elements or mobile packets of information uh, that are forming a network, this fast web of life with the viruses uh, carrying that information from very, very often, in fact, mostly between bacteria, not between larger organisms, um, this is all part of this uh, rich web of life. And there's a very fascinating problem that I've thought about that I think illustrates very well and gets to, to the point of your question. Um, there's a lot of interest in uh, going to Mars, colonizing Mars, or perhaps uh, farther afield. Could we build a spaceship and uh, send it off on a very long journey to some Earth-like planet in another system? It may take tens of thousands of years to get there, but if it was like an arc, you would uh, take everything with you and uh, have enough humans to start a new colony. And that raises the question, uh, it's not enough uh, uh, take a Mars base, not enough to send uh, people and uh, you know, a few pigs and cabbages or potatoes, uh, as in the, the famous film, uh, The Martian. 
it's it's not enough to do that because uh, of this vast microbiology that goes with it. Um, you you can't just grow things in isolation. You've got to have all the bacteria that are in the soil, all the bacteria that go in the guts of organisms. Uh, I should say that Arizona State University, where I work, uh, has uh, projects with NASA looking at astronaut microbiomes. Uh, are they what happens in orbit? Do these little microbes get upset in zero g? Fascinating subject. But the the point I'm trying to make is, if you say, well. We want to build a self-sustaining ecosystem on Mars or some more congenial planet further away. Uh, what is the minimal subset of Earth biota that has to go that would be self-sustainable? Well, give me a catalogue of all those bacteria, all those viruses, you'd need those too, um, as well as the organisms that you would need to keep a human colony going. Uh, we have no idea how to even compute that, but it's entirely possible uh, that it would encompass most of what there is on this planet because it is a web. You can't just pull a little subset of that web out and say, we'll put that in a cocoon and that will flourish in isolation without the rest. And so that raises the rather terrifying prospect um, that if we reduce the total number of species on this planet, um, uh, to beyond a critical threshold, the whole thing may collapse down to something very primitive. And trying to understand that in informational terms, I think, is, is a very good way forward. Because at the end of the day, uh, as I've been at pains to point out, the amazing things that life does uh, is really about you know, its software capabilities, its, uh, the informational aspects. Uh, and that's the thing... Uh, that really makes life tick. And so we have to make sure uh, that we uh, have a, a rich enough web of communication uh, for life to continue to flourish on this planet. Uh, looking at it in those terms, it then becomes very alarming about species reduction, uh, though not quite so alarming as uh, it may appear at first sight, because as I've said, so much of the action the informational action is going on at the microbial level or the viral level. Uh, and, um, it, and it's actually very hard to, on a global scale, to wipe out uh, a species of, of microbes. But we, we uh, at our peril, um, well, if we continue to pollute the planet, um, it, it could be that there, there could be a ca catastrophic collapse. The, uh, the theory of networks, of complex networks, uh, is a, a one under very active investigation. It's particularly critical now with the pandemic because a pandemic is a network. People infect each other, they pass it on and so on. And if we want to manage um, this and future pandemics, we need to uh, apply network theory and to see how this um, these interconnections work on a, on a global scale. So it has very practical, immediate implications, but the application of network theory to biological systems as a whole I think is a, is a fascinating emerging new field. So again, any young people listening to us thinking of making a career in science, this is the sort of area to get into, I think. Yeah, and I think it, it, it overlaps very much with, uh, again, understanding things like culture. If we think about the pandemic in terms of it being a network, um, of course, culture is, is part of that network. And you see the different ways in which different societies have reacted 
to the pandemic and and constructed you know networks around what to do about it and and we see very much how it's embedded in these different ways in which we interpret the world and that's that's shaped the way that network is functioning in different places um i i the, the book is is just you know this is a really fascinating book and and i have found you know i've i've gained a lot out of it um i think it's been interesting the way that you you approach the concept of life and think about um you know information in relation to this and and um of course what you're trying to do is is approach a, a definition of life and um i'm wondering how you think your ideas might inform those who believe that there is some sort of meaning to life um and maybe even a meaning independent of human minds and and i will say that i i'm not a person who uh believes that way i i actually think all meaning is a product of of human minds or maybe of maybe of consciousness and uh maybe another way to think about that um but what do you think your your perspective says for those who see there as being some sort of um uh, inherent meaning to life. Uh, and it's one on which I have written uh, many books. <laughs> you alluded to an early skirmish, uh, God and the New Physics, which uh, I uh, am astonished is still uh, being sold all these decades later, because I've read, subsequently wrote uh, a book called The Mind of God, and then I came on to write a, um, what I regard as my best effort in this area, which is uh, the Goldilocks enigma, Why is the Universe Just Right for Life? Uh, and so I'm approaching this very much from the point of view of uh, physics and biology. Uh, when people say, well, is there a meaning or purpose? Uh, I like to think in terms of the universe as a whole. Is there a meaning or purpose in the universe? You know, well, terms like meaning and purpose are, of course, very loaded, and we have to be really careful how we use them um, because people have, have uh, meanings, uh, attribute meaning, uh, and uh, have purposes. Um, and can we project this onto nature as a whole, uh, not just onto the biosphere, but onto the whole universe? Can we do that? Um, we're very fond of taking human concepts and projecting them onto the universe. Earlier, I mentioned the, the word um, energy, which is something that comes from sort of daily discourse. And then we've been talking about information. But we like to think that, that these apply to the universe as a whole as well. Um, uh, but can we get away with meaning or purpose? Well. Um, I've tried to chart my own course here uh, and come up with a, a type of terminology. But let me just make the following point, which is really important. Um, you cannot be a scientist, uh, in all honesty, uh, and not believe uh, that or take as a matter of faith uh, uh, that um, the universe is ordered in a rational manner and that this order is, in part at least, intelligible to human beings. Because if you think, oh, it's a sham, there is no order there, really. You would never build the Large, large Hadron Collider to look for the next uh, level of order um, as yet unexplored, uh, underpinning the structure of matter. You wouldn't do it. Um, and if you didn't think that the world was intelligible to human beings, well, why would you ever uh, try to do this thing called science? The whole idea is that uh, we have made progress and we can come to understand the world through uh, science and mathematics. So I see. The universe is um, that there is a scheme of things that uh, the universe is about something. Uh, I uh, get nervous if people say, "Well, is there a meaning or a purpose to the universe?" Um, but it is clearly about something. It could have been different. It could have been unintelligible. Uh, there could have been no order at all. 
Uh, but the truth is we live in a very, very special universe that has these properties. And the reason they don't get talked about is because we take them for granted. Um, well, I don't. As a scientist, I realize uh, that the, the laws of physics could have been different. The universe could have been organized differently. Um, and there's an entire branch um, of science. Well, some people think it's a bit of pseudoscience. Um, often goes under the name of the anthropic principle. And I'd like to, to just, um, as we're probably getting near the end of this uh, discussion, we'll come back to the beginning where you asked, how did I first get interested in this? And I actually skipped over something. Uh, when I was a student uh, in London all those years ago, um, I was given a paper by my uh, PhD thesis advisor uh, by an astrophysicist called Brandon Carter. Uh, and he uh, had looked, he'd made a note of the fact that if you look at the fundamental nature of the laws of physics, if you make a few little changes, um, and I'm talking not necessarily in the structure of the laws, but in some of what we call the fundamental constants. So, for example, if all the electrons in the universe were a little bit heavier, or if the strong nuclear force were a little bit stronger, um, what would the consequences of that be if everything else uh, changed, uh, everything else stayed the same? Uh, and the answer is, that the consequences for life might very well be catastrophic. Uh, and the way I like to describe this is that we imagine that you could play the role of a creator and you had in front of you a designer machine with all these dials. Uh, you twiddle this dial and sure enough, electrons get a bit heavier. You twiddle that dial, gravity's a bit uh, weaker or something of that sort. Um, well, then uh, we know that there are 30-something uh, dials on that machine. These are the undetermined parameters of physics and cosmology, things like the rate of expansion of the universe and uh, the strength of, of the forces and the masses of the particles and so on. Uh, we, do, we don't know why they have those numbers that they do, but if you change them, then with some of those dials, uh, they have li literally lethal consequences. You would uh, uh, very soon find that the universe could not support life. Um, and so uh, this suggests that uh, the universe we uh, live in uh, is uh, very special because we live in it, uh, because it is fine-tuned, as people say, for life. Uh, this has caused an immense uh, uh, rupture in the scientific community um, because uh, most scientists accept that what I've just said is true, uh, but the favoured answer is that there's an infinite number of universes, each with slightly different laws in them, and only in that tiny, tiny subset in which everything comes out just right, is there anyone around to celebrate the fact and uh, reflect on the mystery of existence. Um, and so that's one possible pathway. Uh, you have uh, a, a multiverse and not uh, one universe. Um, uh, but if you think that's extravagant, well, then uh, you have to accept the fact that this universe is mysteriously biofriendly and it's coaxed life and uh, consciousness into existence um, ag against what seems like the raw odds. Um, and that plays out very profoundly with me. I, um, I'm not a religious person in any conventional sense. I did win the Templeton Prize, um, but I've charted my own path uh, most of my life. Um, and uh, for me, uh, the most, uh, I suppose, the most profound thing that I believe about the universe, uh, but I, I can't demonstrate it, but it's what I believe, is that this is a universe um, in which the emergence of my of life, first of all, and mind, 
uh, are built in to the fundamental nature of things. And, the, and I go even beyond that, and it's a really important point that I've tried to bring out in my book, Goldilocks, um, that it's not just mind, but it's comprehension. This thing called science, which is so wonderful, so powerful, enables us to tap into the deepest processes in the cosmos. The, the human brain has evolved to survive in the proverbial jungle, and yet it contains within it the cognitive machinery enabling us to unravel the secrets of nature. Maybe not complete that project, but we've done very, very well. Uh, everything from the internal structure of atoms to the nature of black holes. So we can grasp that. Um, I think that is such a profound fact that this thing called science works, that we're doing it, uh, to me indicates that that's not just a stroke of luck, but that is something which is, uh, as it were, built into the very nature of the universe. So I've said that the universe is about something. What is it about? Well, one of the things it's about is the emergence of life and mind. So that sounds like a mystical uh, religious point of view. Perhaps it is. Uh, that, uh, for me, replaces uh, conventional religion. But I'm absolutely convinced that there is uh, a sense in which uh, we as human beings, as humble representatives of this process called life and mind, we're not at the pinnacle of creation or anything like that, but as humble representatives, um, uh, form part of or a witness to uh, that uh, um, aboutness, and I'm not going to use the word purpose uh, because <laughs> it's so loaded, but that, uh, that aboutness, that scheme of things, we are integral to the scheme of things. Um, some people think that gives human beings far too much importance. Uh, well, um, I, I do take uh, life and mind seriously, and, uh, and therefore uh, that, that is my point of view. That's a sort of um, cos cosmological position I take. I'm not sure I have many fellow travellers, but I'm always happy to uh, to affirm that position. Yeah, I I, I think the um, well, I also would say that the the way that you construct the sense of of you know what life is and, and thinking about intelligence, um, obviously, uh, other creatures even here have some level of understanding. They develop certain understandings about their world. And, and I think that's actually a really interesting way to think about what, what's happening here is that life is, uh, in a sense, um, this, this combination of information and matter and intelligence is something that in one way or another develops understanding out of that combination. Um, that's how I, I think that's how I look at it. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if there's anything that we haven't covered that you would like to uh, raise for our listeners. Well, uh, just one thing. Uh, we've ended on a grand note, um, uh, yes. but uh, we, we never explained uh, the title of the book, <laughs> The Demon in the Machine. Uh, what Good is this point. demon? What is this demon? And, uh, and so just uh, let me spend a few moments explaining that. Um, yes. Uh, so uh, We've been talking about how information infuses biology and that we have to somehow come up with ways of understanding the laws of information to go alongside the laws of matter uh, to fully understand what's going on in living organisms. Um, and what is this link between matter and information? We talked about Shannon and its information theory and the flipping coins and bits and so on. Um, but where is the, the physics of information? other than the information is instantiated always in physical degrees of freedom. Well, the link between physics and information, uh, the first hint of that actually goes back a long way to the work of uh, James Clark Maxwell. Uh, at the time he was, um, well, he worked uh, for many years in London at uh, King's College in London, where I used to work. 
Uh, and that's where he developed the theory of electromagnetism. He combined electricity and magnetism and predicted radio waves and explained light as electromagnetic waves. He also made foundational contributions to the theory of heat. Um, and it was that uh, that led to the demon concept. And so he, in a letter to a friend, this was a little more than a, you know, um, maybe one glass of wine too many, I don't know if he was a drinking man. Um, uh, he said, uh, well, uh, imagine that we have a box of gas and all these molecules are rushing around uh, randomly. Uh, and if it's in thermodynamic equilibrium, it's a uniform temperature. And the temperature of a gas is uh, a measure of the average speed of the molecules. So uh, on average, that's the same throughout the box. So now imagine a, a screen down the middle. So there's a left side and a right side, uh, a little hole in that screen. Then from time to time, a molecule will go from the right to the left. And the left to the right, and nothing much will happen. But now imagine that there's a little being, it came to be called a demon, uh, that sits near that hole with a shutter. And if a fast molecule comes from the right, it's allowed through the hole. Uh, and um, if a fast molecule comes from the left, it's blocked off. And so after a while, the average speed of the molecules on the left will be greater uh, than those on the right. So the temperature will be higher, and any competent engineer could then build an engine to tap that temperature gradient and uh, do useful work, run a, run a machine or something. So it looked like this was a perpetuum mobile, a way of turning heat into work without uh, any further change. And that was in flagrant contradiction to the laws of thermodynamics. Uh, and so this came to be known as Maxwell's demon. Uh, in effect, the demon is using information about molecular motions to gain an energy advantage, to uh, basically um, play the margins of the second law of thermodynamics. And this lay like an inconvenient truth at the heart of physics uh, for a long while, um, until uh, really quite recently, when the field of nanotechnology advanced to the point where people can actually build these little Maxwell demons, and they do, and they have, um, and sure enough, you can get them to uh, turn information into work. That's what they're really doing. Information is a type of fuel uh, that uh, can power little devices. My favorite, which I mentioned in the book, is an information-powered refrigerator, which was built in, uh, in Finland. So this is now a, a branch of engineering as well as uh, fundamental physics. And it's true, information is a type of fuel. Uh, and that a demon... Uh, a microscopic uh, device doesn't have to be conscious, but a microscopic information processing system uh, can um, can do useful work as a result of that. Now, I said that just very recently, nanotechnologists have built uh, Maxwell demons. Well, life has been building them uh, for uh, three and a half billion years. Life on Earth uh, is replete with demons. And the, my favorite one, because it's very much like Maxwell's original vision, uh, is in the brain. Uh, when we think about the brain as a vast electrical system, I think a lot of people feel, well, they, um, the signals going down the wires are like electrons going uh, through the circuits uh, in uh, in a computer or something. It's actually not like that. These uh, axons are little tubes. And um, uh, what changes is that uh, there, are little, there are holes uh, the, uh, in the membrane around these tubes and ions, that is charged particles, potassium and sodium typically, uh, will flow in and out through those little holes. 
And those holes are controlled by shatter mechanisms. They get gated ion channels, um, very much like uh, Maxwell had in mind for a demon. Uh, and when the pulse is coming along, these uh, are opened and, and closed uh, in a manner that uh, is extraordinarily energy efficient. And I mentioned earlier that the human brain has the power of a megawatt supercomputer, and yet it operates with the energy equivalent of a light bulb. Um, and part of the reason for that is this demonics that is going on, um, uh, which is incredibly thermodynamically efficient. You see it also with uh, the way DNA is replicated. Um, it's almost a complete uh, thermodynamic perfection. Uh, you never get something for nothing, though. There is always a cost to be paid. Uh, and uh, if, if uh, whether it's a in the, in the human body or Maxwell's original concept, uh, that in order to um, uh, operate in a cyclic manner, so if the demon wants to repeat the trick, right, gain, uh, use one bit of information to gain a little bit of heat, um, if it wants to use the trick, then it has to wipe its memory, its register, and uh, to operate again. And that act of erasure, information erasure, um, pays the thermodynamic price. So what we see here is that the efficient manipulation of information can be used um, uh, to produce extraordinary thermodynamic efficiency, and it's critical for life because life processes so much information that if it was operating with the efficiency of my desktop computer, it would cook itself to death in no time at all. So life can only work because it's got this um, extraordinary ability to uh, process information uh, at the molecular level. But as I pointed out earlier, of course, life goes much beyond simply playing the thermodynamic margins, uh, the sort of things it does with its goals and purposes and uh, vast complex organization requires a much more sophisticated view. But the, but the demon, Maxwell's demon, is the start of this rather long story about how information and matter get together uh, to make this magic that we call life. Well, I think that uh, that wonderfully captures not just the title, but really the the uh, profound content of this book. And and I think our listeners are going to uh, find a lot um, to get out of it. Uh, it's it's a very dense book. There's a great deal going on in this. And um, so I'd like to kind of close up by just asking, well, what's up next? Uh, what could you talk a little bit about what you're doing now in terms of research and any plans you have for in writing in the future? Well, this uh, terrible pandemic, which has uh, upended all our lives, uh, has been a boon to some. And I have to mm. say uh, that in my case, where I found myself accidentally trapped in Australia, uh, which is uh, overstating it really, because we do have a house here and we, we visit uh, from time to time. We came for spring break. Do you, do you remember <laughs> spring break? It was a yes. while ago. <laughs> and uh, yeah. we never made it back. And it was a very wise decision uh, because Australia uh, clamped down uh, hard and, and uh, fast and uh, the pandemic is gone here. It's been gone for some months as a pandemic. Um, it's almost completely eliminated in uh, all of the states uh, here. Uh, and so we're, we're leading a, a very normal lifestyle now, uh, but nervously watching the situation in Arizona to figure out when to go back. Um, but meanwhile, of course, um, because of the, uh, in my case, the lack of international travel, I normally be doing five or six international trips a year and maybe 10 interstate trips. 
all that's gone. Uh, and so I've had more time uh, for my research, but in particular for writing. And I've written another book. I call it my lockdown book. Um, its uh, title is What's Eating the Universe? Um, it's a sort of romp across uh, uh, the latest ideas in cosmology. Um, and uh, it's it's gone off to the uh, publisher now. Uh, it'll be out uh, uh, in about 10 months uh, from now. So so that's, um, I'm very pleased with that. Very different sort of book um, from Demon in the Machine, but I hope uh, uh, enjoyable for people. And it's back to the, you know, my real, what I feel is my real day job, which is physics and, and cosmology. Um, but meanwhile, I've not been idle on the research front. And in fact, I ran a couple of workshops, uh, which are now easier to do in this wonderful Zoom age, uh, because people um, uh, don't have to travel to come to them. And so they've been very successful. And I just did one on uh, alternative theories of gravitation. But earlier, uh, even um, took on this topic of modeling the COVID uh, pandemic using network theory. Um, and that's resulted in a paper. It's the first uh, paper I've ever had on the subject of, of pandemics, uh, but my name is on that paper, um, along with uh, the other contributors to the workshop. So, so it's actually been a very productive time and, uh, and not at all unpleasant, uh, given our uh, much uh, less restrictive environment uh, here in Australia. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a funny comment about the, uh, e the ease of doing things like workshops. Uh, I, I have found that uh, for the first time in, in 20 years as a professor at the University of Texas, my students have come to office hours. Um, right. <laughs> they don't have to go anywhere, so they show up at office hours. Um, but it's, I, you know, it, it is, I've, I've actually found the same thing. I've been uh, productive in ways I hadn't been before um, because of all the other stuff that one does and, and that isn't there. And travel, of course, is one of those things. And uh, I, I also think it's interesting for uh you know, people to think about how, um, particularly scholars who travel a lot have gotten stuck in different places. Uh, I have a colleague who has been teaching from the Isle of Man because that's where she was when this broke out and she couldn't leave. Um, and so it's, uh, uh, has had a, a variety of interesting effects, um, to be sure. And, uh, but I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, the next book. I, I will, um, get that, I think, as soon as it comes out and enjoy reading it. And uh, maybe we could talk again about that one when the time comes in a year or so. So I uh, just want to thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the Science, Technology, and Society channel of the New Books, uh, New Books Network. Uh, it's really been a pleasure talking with you about what I think is a very important book. And, and I think um, a lot of people are going to get a great deal out of this. And so um, it certainly is something I have found uh, tremendously thought-provoking, and I, I can see many ways in which it's it's affecting my thinking about um, how I approach the concept of culture, which is really not something that was uh, part of the book, but is, is certainly something that uh, it can, uh, I think, stimulate a, a great deal of thinking beyond what, what you were specifically focusing on in relation to uh, thinking about life. So thank you very much. And um, I hope that we have a chance to talk again. Well, thank you for your interest. We've covered a lot of ground uh, in this discussion, um, and I hope uh, there will be uh, our listeners out there intrigued enough uh, to go and get the book. <laughs>